Do you know what verse lies at the exact center of your Bible? It is a powerful verse with profound implications for our troubled times. The center verse of the Bible is Psalm 118, verse 9. Here's what it says. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. That one verse lays out two profoundly different worldviews. One looks to sinful man and human wisdom and power to save us. The other looks to holy God and his infinite wisdom and power to save. Coming up, real hope for America and the world, next on Daily in Christ. Welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos. Well, we are now just days away from a critical presidential election here in the United States. And I ask, no matter where you live in the world, please be in prayer for this crucial process. Pray for God to intervene powerfully in this election. Pray that Every single born-again, Bible-believing Christian who is eligible to vote will get out and vote in this election. Pray that all aspects of our election process will go well, with no interference, and that the results would be made expeditiously. Dear friend, no matter the outcome of the election, whether an election here in the United States or if you're in another country in your nation, One thing is perfectly clear. A particular leader of a country is not the supreme sovereign. God is. God himself is indisputably king of kings and lord of lords. He will never be voted out of office or overthrown. God reigns absolutely supreme. His will shall be accomplished to his glory. And that is why we must trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. Indeed, it is this trust in the Lord that is the very foundation of America. And you know, it was that thought that was the driving force behind a message that I preached at my home church recently. And in this episode, I want to bring you part one of this message called In God we trust. Now, I want you to think of yourself on New Year's Day, 2020. What were you thinking 2020 would be like? Well, like a lot of people, I figured, you know, 2020, perfect vision. I just didn't imagine what we were going through. Now, I'm a person who follows the news very carefully, and I was aware that there were reports coming out of China about some sort of sickness that was spreading, and there was some concern. And those stories, of course, increased through the month of January. And um, we ended up with 
a pandemic, a lockdown. How many of you have been through a lockdown in your lives? Raise your hand. No, I mean before this. I don't think we've ever done it. Oh, there was one time in history, it was the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish, in 1918. And, of course, the word unprecedented began to come in March. We saw how sporting events and concerts, my son is involved with a Christian band. They were out in the West Coast, and right in the middle, everything got canceled. They had to come home, and then there was the lockdown. And then there was economic, really, disaster as a result of shutting down a robust economy. There was the racial unrest that happened and rightful protest over what was going on and the wrong that was done. But then we saw like a takeover of that with uh, other elements that we've seen historically before. Uh, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. And we saw riots and we've seen cities burn. And as this thing, especially more recently, was unfolding, I just thought, I've seen this before. I'm old enough to remember the year 1968. In the year 1968, we had a pandemic. The Hong Kong flu. 100,000 people died. People go, oh, 100,000. We have over 200,000. They had 40%. We had 40% less population back then. The numbers were almost the same. Not only do we have a pandemic, we had a war. The Vietnam War. Nobody wanted to be in that war. Not only did we have a war, we had civil unrest on three fronts. Not just one. It was civil rights, the race, racial concerns. It was anti-war and feminism. Three. Three of them all together. Oh, and that was the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. The man who said... That every life matters. That's what he said in 1963. He said that we would not be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. All due respect to black lives matter. As long as we talk in terms of race, we're going to have racism. It is a sin to judge somebody like that. God is not judging you. How dare we judge a person by something as superficial as the color of their skin? Now, There has been a sin that's been going on a long time. We need to deal with it. We need to get to the bottom of what's going on. I'm not saying that. But the drumbeat I'm hearing, well, do you know when Martin Luther King, who advocated peaceful resistance, peaceful protest, that's what he advocated, and he was shot in April. And the moment he was shot, what was by then an effective peaceful protest was being taken over by rioters and a hundred cities burned. Yes, it happened before in 1968. Check it out. I remember. I lived in Milwaukee. Now, fortunately, we had a man of faith who was kind of leading and, and tempering down the violent end. There was, uh, there was a situation going on with housing that was unjust. The laws were changed, thank God. But my dad, you know, when riots did happen, primarily in 1967 in Milwaukee, I was scared as a kid. Because my dad, who worked in a hospital, Mount Sinai in downtown Milwaukee, was talking about the fact that they needed to have snipers up on the neighboring buildings to keep the rioters from storming the hospital. Flipping over ambulances. And then there was the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. I was only eight years old 
But man, I thought the world's gone crazy. And then there was a younger generation that was swept up in just throwing off all inhibition and caught up in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then uh, making inroads to the young generation, Marxism, communism, and that happened in the black race riots of the 1960s. Mark my words, it's happening today. The, the racial unrest has a dynamic that we've been through this before. And we know historically what happened. There are people taking a legitimate cause, racial equity, and hijacking it with something to tear the country apart. It's called Marxism. And everything that we're seeing in our country right now is textbook Marxism. You remember they were pulling down statues a while ago? That's what they want to do. They want to, they want to uh, defund the police, all these things. No, we don't need to defund the police. We need to sit down and figure out what the problem is and get it fixed. I'll tell you how we fix the inner city. The Lord. And number two, we sit down and we listen to the people who are suffering. I'm tired of seeing people who, from the outside, from their cush suburban homes, thinking they know what's going on in our inner cities. They No, they don't. We've seen this before. And if that was the end of the story, that would be really bleak. But do you know what happened? CBS didn't talk about this. NBC didn't talk about this. ABC, the New York Times, the Washington Post. They all missed it. Moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas across this country saw what was going on and heartbroken got down on their knees. And they prayed. And they said, God, do it again. Move in our country. Touch the youth of America because they were, like today, being swept up in this stuff. And do you know what happened? God graciously moved. And there was a revival among the youth of America. And this guy standing in front of you is a fruit of that revival. I was swept in, and so were you guys, during that time in the kingdom. When all across America, and I remember being a kid coming to Penn State, and you weren't there more than a couple of days, and somebody was witnessing to you. And there were these kids that were walking around with big smiles on their face. What's wrong with you? You on drugs? Oh, you got Jesus. You're weird. It was hard, right? It was hard not to avoid it. I mean, it was, it was all over the place. God moved like he has in other generations. When times have been tough, God has moved. And I want to say that we have a solution to our present crisis, whether it's climate, whether it's the racial issue, whether it's economic, or whatever you want to land on, we have an answer, and you've got the answer, and it's in your pocket. Everybody pull your wallet out. Or your, go ahead, let's do it. Pull your wallet out or your purse, okay? And I'm going to get, I'm going to get the lowly $1 bill. This is the answer right here. Oh, oh, no, no, not that. No, what's on the back? What does it say on the back of our currency? One dollar. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Big words. It says, in God we 
trust. Now, look, they don't put graffiti on this money. Your name's not on here. They don't put political slogans on money. That's a big no-no. I'm not saying that, you know, president along the way hasn't tried to do that. The stuff that's actually on our currency is significant in every part. A few months ago, uh, Marcy shared some things about that. But to me, it's notable that this has happened. So my itchy brain, I've got an itchy, curious brain uh, that gets satisfied with learning. I said, well, where did this come from? And doing a little Google search, guess where I ended up? I ended up in the uh, U.S. Treasury website. So may I please read from you, not from a Christian source, but from the United States Treasury website, what it says is the history behind this. The motto, and I'm quoting, the motto, in God we trust, was placed on United States coins largely because of the increased religious sentiment existing during the Civil War. Now stop. Translation. Religious sentiment that existed. Come on. History tells us people weren't being sentimental toward religion. They were agonizing with blood on their hands. And they were down on their knees and they said, Oh God, this is a nightmare. Please help. They cried out to God like has happened every single time in the history of this nation. Do you know there would be no United States if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for revival? That is a historical fact. And it's found in documents, source documents, the original stuff that the letters and the journals and the speeches that were written, original documents. Year was 1991. I was working at Christian Radio down in Maryland. And uh, we worked with local churches and we'd have big speakers coming in. And anyway, uh, we had this guy come in. And uh, we took him out for lunch, and I was sitting right across from him, and I never heard of him. And, you know, I kind of knew roughly what he was there for, and I knew some of the stuff he talked about. Anyway, this guy started, he opened his mouth, and I will say it was one of the most amazing moments of my entire life. He unfolded as a historian, bam, 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 bam. He talked to me for half an hour. Everything he said, he quoted it from source documents. He says, I have photographs, the original documents. He said, it is indisputable that this nation was established on Christian principles. Doesn't mean that all of our forefathers were born again. Some of them weren't. But it's indisputable. That guy's name was and is David Barton. Maybe you've heard of him. And he's become wildly famous because of very calmly and very factually laying out And I remember one thing that David Barton said, and I said, well, I've been down to Washington and I've seen, you know, the monuments with, have you ever been in the Lincoln Memorial? It's like a sermon in there. And you go in the Supreme Court, you see the Ten Commandments all around inside the hall. And he said, I said, well, they'll probably get to sandblasting those one day. He goes, oh no, they don't have to sandblast those monuments at all. All they got to do is sandblast the reputations of the people who put those statements on there. I never forgot. Ah, So it wasn't increasing religious sentiment. It was people who were crying out who had seen God move. People who had seen God move from the very beginning. Do you know there would never be 13 colonies today? 
There wouldn't have been 13 colonies originally, therefore no United States. Why? Because there wouldn't have been the empire, the great, the, the British Empire. Well, how can you say that, Mark? Well, back in the 17th century, the British Empire was the strongest, biggest empire on earth. But they had a real big problem. People were leaving God. And they were rotting from the inside. The enemy wasn't from without. The enemy was from within. It is reliably reported that every sixth house was a house of drinking and alcohol. And where alcoholism comes, oh boy, you got a lot of problems. But there were people who got down on their knees and cried out to God, and God graciously moved the first great awakening. And that saved England from rotting from the inside. Oh, and by the way, do you know how, how Great Britain got rid of slavery? They didn't have a bloody civil war. Revival. It was a revived people who were brought to Christ, who had the sensibility to realize biblically that it's wrong to treat someone like property, like a slave. And they're the ones who fought. And England ended slavery without shedding a drop of blood. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was revival. And I said... If there wasn't a Great Britain, there couldn't possibly have been 13 colonies. But there was a Great Britain because it sustained because of God's grace and moving the way he did in revival. Now we roll ahead in history to the 13 colonies. And you know what happened, the tyranny and the difficulty that people had. And then there was another war. Well, there was a war. The American Revolution. We know the results of that. But most Americans don't realize what happened right after the, war, the American Revolution, Revolutionary War ended. It was not good at all. Riots broke out. People burned stuff down. People looted. People murdered. Why? Because the British Empire, when they left, they were the law keepers. They were the police. They were the judges. And suddenly there's lawlessness. Boom. The country, which had miraculously been uh, defeated, the largest empire on earth, was about to collapse from within. But there was an older generation who had seen God move in the first great awakening and they got down on their knees and they cried out to God and guess what happened? God moved in revival, was called the second great awakening. And it happened during the entire 1800s, 19th century. And you have people like Finney and Moody and others had a profound impact on this country. I could go ahead to the 20th century and I could point to the Welsh revival and to the Azusa Street revival how God moved in a powerful way. Do you know after our country and the world was heartbroken and decimated after that horrible <coughs> Second World War, there was revival that broke out across the country, primarily healing revivals. And I talked about the revival among the youth that happened in the late 60s and the 70s. That's our God. That's what happens when you trust God. Getting back to the story of why we as a nation say in God we trust. And that's our national motto. Here's what happened. Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase received many appeals. And again, I'm reading from the U.S. Treasury website. Many appeals from devout persons throughout the country. The people of God spoke up. What was the problem? 
urging the United States to recognize the deity God on United States coins. From Treasury Department records, it appears that the first such appeal came in a letter dated November 13, 1861, right during the war. It was written to Secretary Chase by Reverend M.R. Watkinson, minister of the gospel from Ridleyville, Pennsylvania. Here's what he said. Here's what the minister said to the Secretary of the Treasury. Dear sir, you are about to submit your annual report to the Congress respecting the affairs of the national finances. Now, hang in with the language. You know, they're a little kind of starchy. One fact touching our currency has hitherto been seriously overlooked. I mean the recognition of the Almighty God in some form in our coins. Now, you understand, historically, Americans knew if there wasn't God moving, there would be no America. No way, no how. In fact, the fact that we even won the Revolutionary War was nothing short of a miracle because it was a bunch of ragtag losers. What if our republic were not shattered beyond reconstruction? In other words, what if we actually survived this current catastrophe? Would not the antiquaries, and what he means by that are collectors of old documents, of succeeding centuries rightly reason from our past that we are a heathen nation? What I propose is that instead of the goddess of liberty... We shall have next inside the 13 stars a ring inscribed with the words perpetual union. Within the ring, the all-seeing eye, which is the eye of God, crowned with a halo. Beneath this eye, the American flag bearing its field stars equal to the number of the states uh, united. In the folds of the bars, the words God, liberty, and law. Note what word is first, God. This would make a beautiful coin to which no possible citizen could object. Boy, things have changed. Anyway, this would relieve me of the ignominy of heathenism. This would place us openly under the divine protection we have personally claimed. Now remember, he's writing this letter at the front end of this awful war, the Civil War. Which, by the way, they didn't call it the Civil War back then. The North called it the Great Rebellion. From my hearth, I have felt our national shame in disowning God as not the least of our present national disasters. To you first, I address a subject that must be agitated, debated. As a result, Secretary Chase instructed James Pollock, then director of the Mint at Philadelphia, to prepare a motto in a letter dated November 20, 1861, which read, Dear Sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God. This is the Secretary of the Treasury. Or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared in our national coins. You will cause, I'm ordering you, a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay, get it done, post-haste, with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition. Continuing on the website. It was found that the Act of Congress dated January 18... 18... This is 1837. I don't know. Anyway, prescribed the models and devices that would be placed upon the coins of the United States. This meant the mint 
could make no changes without the enactment of additional legislation by the Congress. In December 1863, the director of the Mint submitted designs for a new one-cent coin. You know, back then a penny was worth something, and everybody were handling pennies an awful lot. Then uh, two-cent and three-cent coin to Secretary Chase for approval. He proposed that upon the designs, either our country, our God, or God, our trust, should appear as a motto on the coins. In a letter to the Mint Director dated December 9, 1863, Secretary Chase stated, I approve your mottos, only suggesting that on that, with the Washington obverse, the motto should begin with the word our. So as to read our God and our country, and that with the shield, it should be changed so as to read in God we trust. The Congress passed the act of April 22nd, 1864. This legislation changed the composition of the coins from that point going forward. In God, we trust. I want you to turn to Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. 118, 8 and 9. Here's a very powerful thing right in the middle of your Bible. Do you know it's the exact geographic center of your Bible? It is the exact amount of scriptures before and after. This text is right in the dead center of your Bible, and it says a lot. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. That's a good word for us to hear, especially during a presidential election year where we're seeing all kinds of princes. What does it mean biblically to trust in God? The Amplified, wherever, and I like the Amplified version as a reference, cross-reference, because it so often brings in the language and nuances of the underlying biblical language. So in the Old Testament, it's Hebrew and Aramaic, and then in the New Testament, it's the Koine Greek. You get a better sense of what those underlying words mean. So every time it brings up the word trust, it amplifies it to say to rely on, trust in, and be confident in. The idea is like your whole weight resting upon something. You sat in the chair you sat in because you believed it would actually hold you up. But what if I told you half of the chairs, the screws are rusted through and they might break? I think you would probably spend a little more time checking it out. You can only trust what you know. You people really surprised me this morning. How many of you came in... uh, car or truck or an SUV, raise your hand. In other words, you didn't walk. Okay. Now you actually stuck your key in the ignition knowing full well that one of the most flammable substances on earth, gasoline, in large quantity will be ignited and will blow up not once but many times. And you were silly enough to believe it would actually get you somewhere. Now how is it that you had such trust in your vehicle. Well, it's because there's a track record. 
of how automobiles work and the regulations that ensure our safety and the companies that do work hard because it is a disaster when one of their cars blows up and kills a family on the way to church. See, your trust is informed. That's important to understand. You know, you may hear trust in the Lord, but I want to say you need to understand that we're talking about your trust goes up in God as you pull your attention toward Him. Understanding Him. Understanding what the Word. That's why the Word is so important. You know, um, you may have a financial advisor. Uh, you know, my dad just passed away, so we're kind of dealing with his uh, financial advisor. And his name, believe it or not, is David Cash Dollar. And I was talking the other night, and he explained, the, the you know, what's, what's the deal with the last name? He kind of laughed. and It's an American story. But anyway, he... He based, I said, you know, you, you, with a name like that, should either be a financial advisor, a banker, or a robber. You know, <laughs> he left. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. This is one of the most important parts of the Bible on this subject. And this very vividly talks in a contrast between the danger and cursedness of trusting man as opposed to trusting God and the blessing of trusting God. Are you there? Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. Now, historical context. I'm always, I'm a big context person. What was going on during the time that Jeremiah was prophet, what was the what was the modern events? What was contemporary events? Anybody know? Well, a hundred years early earlier, the Assyrians had defeated the northern kingdom, the northern tribes of Israel, and took it over. The Assyrians. In the time of Jeremiah, the southern kingdom, which was two tribes, including the holy city of Jerusalem, were now facing another threat. And the threat was from the, both the Assyrians and also from the Babylonians. Jeremiah was sent of God, the weeping prophet, to prophesy, and it wasn't good news. It was news you didn't want to hear. And that was of the coming impending judgment and destruction of Jerusalem, the holy city. And that was the context. Now the people, the Jewish people, were seeing the threat now coming from two sides, the Assyrians to the north and the Babylonians to the, to the east. And they were like, oh my, we need help. And I don't know what it is about the Jewish people, but they always turn to Egypt for help. Maybe it's because of what happened at the time of Joseph, I don't know. But there's an awful lot of idolatry down there and worldliness in Egypt. And so that's the context of what was going on. So we read here the prophet Jeremiah who's speaking to these people in this situation who had this tendency to rely on the Egyptians. He says this, Thus saith the Lord, boy, you better listen now, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Oh boy. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. There's a commentary that I sometimes turn to for additional insight. The biblical illustrator talking about the folly and evil of trusting in man. 
To trust in man, it says, in the sense of our text, is to expect that from creatures which only can come from the Creator. To confide in them, not as mere instruments, but as efficient causes. In other words, as a source to get something done. To look to them as to look off from God, instead of looking to God. To cleave to them so as to depart from Him. That's, that's strong. Now look at the effect here in Jeremiah chapter 17. The effect of trusting in man instead of God. Verse 6 says this, For he, the person who trusts in man, you have to understand At some point when you sat down in your chair, you had to transfer your weight, right? From your feet to your your bottom in a chair. There is the nature of trust. At some point, you may have to have surgery, and that surgery requires a surgeon or a specialist. And at some point, you can't have many surgeons. you got to pick one, and they're the one that are going to bear the knife, cut you open, do do the surgery. That's the nature of trust. It's sort of a one or the other kind of thing when it comes to relational trust. So the effect of a person who who isn't trusting in God but trusting in man is this. Uh, He shall be like a shrub in the desert. You know, it's interesting that the Bible talks about the righteous being mighty like trees. And then it says, and shall not see good when shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit, meaning to live in, not just temporarily, but inhabit, live there for the rest of their life, the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. <laughs> Great real estate, let me tell you. This not trusting God, but trusting man. So it's like a shrub in the desert that inhabits parched places in the wilderness. The wilderness is actually a desert. In a salt land which is not inhabited. It sounds like a miserable, fruitless, barren, deadly life. That's what it's like when I trust in me or man. I am not trusting in God. And barrenness happens. And fruitlessness happens. And all kinds of uh, problems. You know, it always seems to me, and I'm old enough to have seen more than one crisis come around the block, that every time we get into crisis in this world, in this nation, it's like the world starts screeching. We got this. Do this. Say this. Go here. Every single time. You know, I think one of the benefits of getting older is you see stuff and go, I've seen this before and I'm not going to fall for it again. I fell for it once, but I ain't falling for it again. Isn't it true? I've said this before and I'll say it again. Shut it all off. Get in the Word. Listen to God. Listen to your Creator. Listen to God. How in the world can you trust Him if you don't really know Him? And I know that we're in a little election right now. Well, if you think your particular candidate, whoever it is, is going to be the solution 
Cursed is the man or woman who trusts in man. That's not what it's about. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. By the way, the deadline to get yourself registered to vote is tomorrow. Every Christian should be voting prayerfully. You have been listening to the first part of a message that I preached recently in my home church entitled, In God We Trust 2020. Now I say, In God We Trust 2020, because I preached a different message titled, In God We Trust, in 2016, just days before the presidential election. The origin of the message this time around was prayerful seeking God for all of the well, all of the dark things that are happening in our nation, in our world of late. And then I thought about the national motto of the United States of America, in God we trust. And as I said in the message, that's emblazoned on American currency. It's a powerful message. And when I learned about the history of that motto and read about it of all places at the United States Treasury website, I was so struck at its godly origins. I was moved to call us back to In God We Trust. And you know, this isn't a message only for America. It's a message for the world. Please take some time to meditate upon the scriptures we shared, particularly in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. And then next week, we'll bring you the second and concluding part of this powerful message for our time. Let's pray. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Father, that the words of that hymn pull at my heart right now as I pour out my heart together with my brother and sister in Christ in prayer. Father, first of all, we do want to pray for this election process in this nation. And I pray specifically, Father, that all God-fearing, Bible-believing Americans who can legally vote will do so. But Lord, I Understand, and our hope should not be in our presidents or legislatures or the courts. Lord, our hope is in you. And Father, I pray for a national revival that would sweep the globe, a revival that would be marked by the clear preaching of the biblical gospel that sets men free, that it would be attended with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that there would be an awesome sense of your presence, Lord, and that we would see lives being miraculously, supernaturally saved, healed, and delivered. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Dear friend, thank you so much for listening to the Daily in Christ podcast. Above all, thank you for taking this message to heart. Now, if you've been blessed, please let your friends and family know about this podcast. And it's available on podcast platforms everywhere. Also, you can check out our website at dailyinchrist.org. That's dailyinchrist.org. 
I'm Mark Van Oos, Bible teacher and host, reminding you once again of what it says in Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him.